Welcome to another episode of our digitally remastered old-time radio shows from SolvedMystery.com. Visit our website for complete collections of your favorite old-time radio series. Remember to follow us so you won't miss new releases from SolvedMystery.com. You'll be in contact with a given object. Yes, science can prove where a man has been and what he has touched. But being able to prove these things, Scotland Yard must prove them. The onus is on them. If they overlook any accepted means of obtaining evidence, then this may react in favor of the accused. That is why this seeming paradox of the advance of scientific crime detection adding to Scotland Yard's responsibility is not a paradox at all. After that, I expect you're wondering what I've got for you this week. Well, what would you like? I've got here a true story of uh, war and bombs and air raids and last-minute escape, illicit love and passion and jealousy, broken-hearted woman, incriminating love letters, and a fight to the death between two men. A little dull, do you think? Well, uh, let's say a trifle colorless. Anyway, we've got a courtroom, please. The protagonist of this story is still alive. He is a captain in the Polish Army. You must respect his anonymity, so I've called the story The Case of Captain X. September 1939, the Germans advance in Poland. The capital, Warsaw, is bombed day and night. Hundreds of thousands of people search desperately for a way to escape the rapidly closing Nazi net around the city. A young Polish cavalry lieutenant rides furiously through the bomb streets to the house of his friend, Captain Victor X, a Polish officer, and his English wife, Sylvia. Keep the company during this awful bombing. But your husband, Victor, he is not here with you? Alas, no. My captain's at the wars, Lieutenant. But that cannot be. Our entire division is in, how you say, blood. It has become everyone for himself. Don't prepare. Perhaps then he didn't escape. Oh, but anyway, I'm waiting here. No, you cannot do this. That is why I've come. As your friend and Victor's friend, I cannot leave the country without seeing to our both. You're leaving the country? Anyone who can do it. There's the Polish government to be formed in England, abroad. Then we shall go on with the war against the Germans. How can you go out? That is why I've come to you and Victor. Almost all the ways are not so. But this influential friend I have, Patrick Metro Kratowski, he has airplanes flying tonight to France. There's room for two more. He says it's all right for you and Victor. Oh, Stanislaus, it's wonderful of you. But I can't go, of course, until I hear from Victor. Julia, Victor. We would want you to go without him. No, no. You are not of this country. Your home is in England. Yes, but I married a Polish officer. My place is with him. No, Stanislaus. I must wait for it. When did your plane go? Two hours and a half from now. You refuse to leave without him? Listen, Stanislaus, he may come tonight. If he comes before the plane leaves, I'll bring him to the airport and we'll join you. Is that all right? This is the way you perhaps lose your only chance of escape. That's a risk I'll have to take. He may turn up. 
and the lieutenant were again fighting with their country, with the Polish contingents in France, while the captain's wife had returned to her native country, England. A year after their escape from Poland, these three people had again been reunited in London. France and Poland, the two men had fled to England, and the captain and his wife were living in cheap lodgings in the Victoria district of London. That autumn, the great city was undergoing the same type of aerial bombardment that Warsaw had suffered a year before. But in the captain's life, there was domestic war as well. Every night they come. Every night. You can't go on forever, darling. Violence is shooting down more every day. Oh, dear. Now the lights have gone. That must have been awfully close. I should have joined the Polish Air Force here in England. It is a terrible thing for a man who is a fighting soldier to be not able to. No, it was Charlie. Oh, I know how you feel, Victor. You're doing valuable work where you are. Matches. Where are these matches? Well, they always are, but on the mantelpiece. Oh! Ah. Yes, I have them now. There. This is better. This is a good thing Mr. Carew does to put these candles in the room. Yes, he's a very thoughtful man. For a landlord. But, but what is this? This is a badge. Polish badge. Not mine. Oh. Oh, there. Uh, that must belong to Stanislaus. Stanislaus? You have been seeing him. Oh, yes. It's a matter of fact I have. But why? Why did you not tell me? I would like to see him, too. Well, you see, Victor. Oh, 
Oh, well, I suppose we might as well know now as later. What is it? What soon must I know? Thanks, last night. Well, well, come on, talk, please. What is it? We're in love. You must try to understand. Understand? Sir. Understand this for my wife? No, I will not understand. You will stay faithful to me. You are my wife. I know, I know, sister, but this is not... You talk because... no more. You hear, Sylvia? You knew you loved me. Only me, Victor, your husband. Forget this silly, sunny Sylvia. Yes, Victor. I must have you always with me. I must not see you go away. If this thing ever happened, if you try to leave me, I cannot stand for this. I will not want to leave. I take my gun, this gun, you see? I take the gun and I shoot like this. <laughs> Only when I shoot them, it will be at my head. But I cannot go on to leave without you here, Sylvia. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Yes. That is better, yes. You for mercy, thanks, love. Uh, short way of me. But this was by no means the end of the trouble. The young lieutenant continued his attentions to Sylvia, and she was not strong-willed enough to wait with him. A month later, the captain discovered that the two had been seeing each other again. There was another angry scene, and the captain again threatened suicide. Sylvia wrote in a letter to Stanislas after the quarrel. And I really think that Victor will carry out his threat if he suspects that you and I are still seeing each other after tonight. Dear Stanislas, I don't know what I should do. So I'm happy, Sylvia. relatively smoothly, until the day that Victor, picking up a scrap of paper by the waste paper basket, caught sight of the name Tanislas written up, and found it to be part of a letter, a love letter to his wife. He immediately decided what course to take. Sylvia! 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 You looking for your wife, Captain? Oh. Mr. Carroll, yes. Uh, have you seen her? Well, didn't you know, Captain? She went off about an hour ago in taxi. She never tell me. I didn't tell you. I mean, she, she took a cup of soup. Go to the Oh, this, this. Now I understand. Uh, may I use your telephone, please? Certainly, Captain. That's the best. You know what it is. Uh, yes. Thank you. Come? Yes. 
Yes. Farewell, Victor. I come at once. Now, we shall see. When Stanislaus came round to the lodgings, Victor gave the landlord instructions they must not on any account be disturbed, as they had a very urgent matter to discuss. The landlord, a mystical rule, saw them into the lounge, shut the door, and went upstairs to make the bed. It was less than ten minutes later when he heard extremely angry voices coming from the lounge. He went down a flight of stairs so that he could hear better. Daddy, you can spot him. It's always coming. Well, surely. As if he weren't enough with us, something more going on over here, they tell us, Peter. Oh, no, Peter. No, give this to me. I need the other. Oh, stop. That's you. No, what have you done, Captain? It was. Ah, Was it an accident, or was it murder? obviously dead. Facing him with a smoking revolver in his hand stood the captain. No, oh, what have you done, Captain? He's dead, isn't he? It's you. It was accident. Well, I'm afraid you'll have to tell that to the police. I'm all against telling them here, but I'll, I'll have to call them. Oh, Lord, nothing like this ever happened to me before. It was accident. Yes, well, you, you better stay here and don't move anyway. I've always read you must never move anything when things like this happen. To think that something like this could happen in my house. It was not long after that Detective Inspector Wimpole arrived on the scene. His investigation revealed that the revolver had been fired three times. Two shots had been fired into the body of the lieutenant and one in exactly the opposite direction. The bullet mark being found near the window facing the victim. It was also found that the captain's cigarette case was lying in the armchair. But it was quickly realized that the relative positions of the two men would probably have changed during the course of their discussion. Detective Inspector Wimpole now asked the captain to explain what had happened. It is accident while we fight. I asked the lieutenant here to talk to him before he has been seeing my wife too much. Perhaps he had run away with him. He comes. I asked him to stop seeing my wife. He said no. I asked again. He said no again. I then take my gun and say I no longer need to he come at me and take the gun from my hand. Then he shoot at me. The bullet is there by the window. So I fight with him for the gun. While we fight, the gun fires twice. Stanislav falls into arm's share. He's dead. It was accident, Inspector. I see. Uh, thank you, Captain. You've been most helpful. I'm afraid I shall have to ask you to remain in the building, perhaps uh, upstairs in your room. 
while I complete my investigation here. I stay in my room. Oh, and uh, would you send the landlord in to see me? If he's out there? I do be. Quarrel. Captain threatens suicide. Lieutenant takes gun, fires once. And struggle. And two shots. Both at the lieutenant. He falls. You wanted to see the inspector? Oh, yes. Uh, you're the landlord? That's right, Inspector. Carew's the name. Harry Carew. Now, Mr. Carew, whereabouts in the building were you when this, uh, this quarrel was taking place? No, sir. At first, I was upstairs making a bed. Anyone with you? No, sir. I'm, I'm all alone here. No help these days. Now, before the war, you were making the bed. Oh, yes, sir. Then I hear the shouting from down here. The captain's voice and the captain got killed. Real lousy voices was. So I thought I'd, well, I'd better see if nothing serious was happening. I got down one flight of stairs. Could you hear what the voices were saying? I heard the lieutenant judge give it to me twice. And then there were three shots. But they didn't come together, did they? How do you mean, Inspector? The shots weren't together, were they? There was a pause between the first and second. No, Inspector. Three shots in a row. Bang, bang, bang. Are you positive? Positive, Inspector. Go on. Well, I don't downstairs then, you know. And when I open the door, I see the captain standing there with a the gun still smoking in his hand. And the lieutenant in the chair. Detective Inspector Wimpole realized that the case was not as clear-cut as he first imagined. Either the captain was lying and the gun had gone off three times in rapid succession, or else Mr. Carew's memory was inaccurate, and there had been a lapse of time between the first and the second two. For the moment, it was the word of the police officer against the word of the landlord. But it was not long before the scales dipped heavily on one side. Sir Bernard Spilsbury, the famous home office pathologist, conducted the post-mortem examination. His findings and his opinion as to what had occurred were to prove the most important factors in the case. Of the two shots that entered the body of the deceased, the first penetrated the heart and was undoubtedly the cause of death. The second shot caused a superficial wound on the face and then proceeded in a downward direction, causing a wound in the body. From the position in which the body was found, it would have been impossible for the second bullet to have been fired when the deceased was already sitting in the chair. But there was no trace of blood from the wound caused by this second bullet. This can only mean that the first shot into the heart completely stopped the circulation of blood and proves that the second shot was fired after the man had died. The Bernard's analysis shed a new light on the case. If the second wound had been inflicted after the lieutenant's death, how likely was it the shot had been fired during the struggle? Was it not far more likely that the three shots had indeed been fired almost simultaneously as the landlord had said, and that the struggle was an invention by the captain? Didn't the evidence point to the conclusion that the gun never left the captain's hand? Detective Inspector Wimpole was convinced of this and executed his obvious duty. You'll have to come with me, Captain. I'm here to warrant for your arrest. I must warn you that anything you say may be taken down in writing and may be used in evidence. You do this for this shooting? Do you think I killed him, I say, on purpose? Yes. I'm charging you with murder. <laughs> Thank you.
It was after the captain had been committed for trial at the Central Criminal Court of the Old Bailey that Sir Patrick Hastings was put in charge of the defense. Hastings, one of the most celebrated of all defense barristers, soon made up his mind about the case. One can picture him explaining it to the captain. One thing you must realize, the cream personnel has no place in the courts of England. Perhaps abroad it would be enough for you to say, I am a Polish officer, my honor is involved, the man is dead, and you'd be acquitted. But that sort of thing won't work here. I understand, yes. What will you say then? It seems to me that our main danger is the evidence of the landlord. He said that we're in rapid succession. Bang, 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 as he put it. If he is the lead, we're done for. Your story of a struggle having taken place after the lieutenant fired the first shot will only be believed if we make out that there was a pause between shot one and shot two, and hardly any pause between shot two and shot three. Although Silver is convinced the last shot was fired after death, if we make out the last two shots were fired almost at the same moment, his evidence will not be so damning as it appears. The judge, who will judge my case? Mr. Justice Humphrey, one of the best. Mm. This Mr. Humphreys, he will believe. I take the gun to shoot myself. Stanislas, he take it from me and shoot. I fight with him. The gun goes off twice. And then the gun is in my hand and Stanislas is in the chair. Dead. Good heavens. I've suddenly realized something. In the report of depositions before the magistrate, there's not one mention of fingerprints. Don't you see? If your story is true, then both your print and the lieutenant will be on that gun. For you say you both handled it. And this was found? Both our fingerprints were found on the gun? That is what I'm going to find out. It was an unusual trial that took place that summer at the Old Bailey. There's usually something sordid about a murder case, but this was an exception. Jack Tender, tall, dignified, his face impassive, his military honors bright upon his uniform, the captain was out of place in that courtroom. His whole appearance was in his favor, but the evidence wasn't. The jury was sworn to try the issues joined between our sovereign lord, the king, and the prisoner at the bar. The prosecuting counsel outlined the case for the crown, and the first witness was called. It was Mr. Carew, the landlord. He repeated his tale exactly as he had told it to the police. The Patrick Hastings rose to court. Now, uh, Mr. Carew, you say you came downstairs when you heard the raised voices. Yes, sir. I came down one floor. Why? Well, sir, I didn't want any trouble. You came down to hear better, isn't that it? Uh, yes, sir. I mean... Oh, never mind. You then heard three shots, and you say there were no pauses between them. No, sir. All three together. Bang, bang, bang. Now, Mr. Carew, can you be sure? You were excited, were you not? You weren't used to hearing about the shots in your house. I certainly wasn't, sir. So you may be mistaken as to how the shots followed each other. I remember it perfectly, sir. They went bang, bang, bang. I see. Then you went into the room and saw the scene that you have described to me. What were the first words the captain said? He said, it was an accident. You then told the police? Yes, sir. Then what did you do? I went up to finish the bed. 
I beg your pardon. Oh, so I went upstairs to finish making the bed. <laughs> it was certainly not a very material point, but it seemed to make some effect in court. Perhaps most of us would not be in the mood to make beds just after discovering a dead body. The next witness for the prosecution was Sir Bernard Spilsbury. He was emphatic in his opinion that the final shot could not have been fired in the course of a continuing struggle. But Patrick Hastings has long ago learned that there was no final person in the witness stand than Sir Bernard. In consequence, he asked him as few questions as possible in cross-examination. Trusting the jury would remember that doctors are not infallible and are often wrong. But with the next witness, he was by no means so cautious. There was a challenging glint in Sir Patrick's eye as he began the cross-examination of Detective Inspector Wimpole. Tell me, Inspector, when you arrived at the lodging house, how long had elapsed since the telephone call of Mr. Carew? Twenty minutes. Had anything been moved? As far as I could see, nothing. Where was the revolver? It was on the table. The prisoner said he put it there after the landlord had come in. Am I right in saying that if the deceased had obtained possession of the weapon at any point, both men's fingerprints would be on the gun? Yes. But if the prosecution is right, and only the prisoner handled the gun, then only his fingerprints would be found upon it? I cannot say. Were the fingerprints of the deceased found upon the gun? Um, I'm afraid I cannot say. Why not? Well, Inspector, I'm afraid that before the revolver was examined, uh, uh, several of us, uh, that is, had handled it and, uh, well, uh, no fingerprints were distinguishable. That's right. Oh. <laughs> the effect on the jury was enormous. Someone had blundered. The man in the dock had been deprived of an essential part of his defense by a slip on the part of the police. The captain's story of the struggle for the gun could have almost been corroborated had the lieutenant's fingerprints been found. But as it was, the jury was not going to be shown evidence which would have greatly influenced their decision. That decision was finally known 20 minutes afterwards when the judge had sent them out to consider their verdict. Standing dignified and immovable, resembling almost a stone statue, the proud captain heard himself acquitted of the charge brought against him. And there were few indeed in that courtroom who were not pleased to see him free. I'm glad to say he was later reconciled with his wife. And when the Polish forces landed in Europe in 1944, Victor was with them, continuing the battle fought upon his country five years before. Wherever he may be now, I imagine he carries with him an excellent opinion of British justice. No man on trial for his life will be deprived of evidence which might constitute him innocent. Thank you for joining us and enjoying our digitally remastered old-time radio shows from SolvedMystery.com. Please remember to leave us a review and to follow us for frequent releases.